How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you. Good morning. I think we need to, you know, blink the lights. I said last week, like like they do in the theater, you know, just a five-minute warning. We are continuing our study through the book of First Peter. We are in chapter four. We're going to be looking at verses twelve through nineteen this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and one of these fine gentlemen will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter four, verses twelve through nineteen, as we make our way through the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasting, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. The title of my message this morning is Suffering Leads to Glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity that we have to be in Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for just, uh, Lord, the opportunity to hear from You, Lord, from Your Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts as we study Your Word. Lord, we we love the fact that we can fellowship together, Lord, that we can get to know one another, but the best thing about this time together is we draw closer to you and our relationship with you, Lord. So help us, Lord, to be attentive to your word this morning, to receive all that you have for us. And finally, Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, Lord, would you especially speak to their heart that they would come to know you, Jesus, as their Lord and as their Savior. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read a story about a fire that started out in some grasslands near a farm. The country, or the county rather, the fire department was called in to put out the fire. Well, the fire was bigger than the county fire department can handle. And so there's someone suggested, hey, call the, the volunteer fire department. Call them, be those guys in. And, and despite some doubt that the volunteer outfit would be of any assistance, they said, all right, we need help, let's call them. So this volunteer arrives at the beat up, in this beat-up old fire truck. They rumble straight towards the fire, drove right into the middle of the flames and stopped. The fireman jumped out of the truck and frantically started spraying water in all the directions around them. Soon they'd snuffed out the center of the fire, breaking the blaze into two easily controlled parts. While watching this whole scene, the farmer was so impressed with this volunteer fire department and and so grateful for what they had done 
and sparing his farm, he wrote them a check right on the spot for $1,000. Well, the local news reporters, you know, asked the volunteer fire captain, what do you plan on doing with the, the funds? That ought to be obvious, he responded, wiping ashes off his coat. First thing we're going to do is get the brakes fixed on our truck. Right into the fire. How that story goes so well with Romans 8.28. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And there cannot be any truer words than what Peter's telling us here when it comes to suffering. Because what we've seen for the most part is Peter dealing with the subject of suffering. He, he has pointed to Christ as our example to be like when we go through hard times, when we go through difficult times. We've been encouraged to keep our eyes focused on Him. And that's not really too difficult for us when everything is going well. Most of us, we've been blessed by God. God has supplied for all of our needs. We, we've you know, been blessed by God that we live in a free country where we have religious freedom. We have personal freedom. For the most part, we've been blessed with good health, with food on the table. We feel secure in our country. And the reality is we have it pretty easy when it comes to our Christian faith. But what about if things change? What about if things go wrong? What about those times when we face financial failure or poor health or extreme sorrow or disappointment? What if our religious freedoms get taken away? What would happen if the opposition we're facing today as Christians become violent and persecution, suffering, and even death become a very real threat to us? Listen, all these things happened to to the people that Peter was writing to. And so Peter is really giving us practical advice for when we may face trials much like what they had to face. And so he says to us, if you're taking notes, three things that we need to realize concerning trials and suffering. He says, number one, realize it. Number two, rejoice in it. And number three, respond to it. First thing we are to do is we're to realize it. Realize trials, sufferings, persecution is going to come. It's going to happen. And it shouldn't take us by surprise when it does. Look at verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But isn't that the first thing we think of when we go through a trial? This is so strange. I didn't see this coming. Why is this happening to me? Peter says, listen, don't, don't think it's strange. Don't think it's strange. He says, if you love Christ, then don't be surprised when trials and sufferings come. They are a normal part of living this life in the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you in John 15, 18. He said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, Jesus said they will also persecute you. See, Peter says, expect opposition. Expect trials. Expect suffering. The image of fire here, the fiery trials, often used for a time of testing or, or persecution in today's language. You know, you hear people say, oh, he's really going through, through the fire right now. He's really having a difficult time. It's a typical statement to describe someone experiencing personal difficulties and hardships. Now understand, not every difficulty in life is necessarily a fiery trial. There are some difficulties that we bring on ourselves because of disobedience, because of sin, and we're just reaping what we've sown. And there are some other difficulties and problems and trials that that are just simply a part of human life. Almost everybody experiences them. 
You can't really say, oh, the Lord is really allowing me to go through this trial. I've had this cold for two days now. Really, I feel sorry for you, man. It, it, no one else has ever experienced that. It's amazing. I've had this hangnail. I'm really just, just there's a problem with, oh. Listen, even though we've been born again, we're still finite creatures living in a fallen, sinful world. So we shouldn't be shocked or surprised when bad things happen, when difficulties happen. It's all a result of the curse. But what is very real is this. As long as we, who belong to God, live in a world that is opposed to God, there is going to be confrontations. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be trials. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. Especially as we consider some of the things going on in our world today that we as Christians must make a stand against. And as we do, as we stand upon the Word of God, as we take a stand... We're going to create some enemies. When you make your voice known at a school board meeting how critical race theory is anti-God, it's Marxist, and should not be taught in our schools, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be made fun of. People are not going to speak kindly of you. The world's not going to applaud you. They'll speak evil of you, which is a reminder for us this coming Tuesday, uh, there's going to be those running for this school board. We want to make a change in our schools uh, look at the conservative candidates, the ones that are against CRT, that will stand for godly principles in the classroom and come out and vote for them. Why? Because our schools are under attack like never before. So we as Christians need to say, no, take a stand. This is wrong. Perhaps you've read that Disney CEO Bob Chapek has opposed the new bill signed into Florida uh, by Ron DeSantis known as uh, the Parental Right in Education Bill. Governor DeSantis signed it in, in, into, into law. The bill basically prohibits Florida teachers from pulling your kindergartner through third grader aside without your knowledge, without your permission, and instructing them on gender identity and sexual orientation. Governor DeSantis says, no, we don't, we don't do that. This, this is wrong. Great, great bill. Stop teachers from teaching anti-God propaganda. My only complaint is it doesn't go far enough. It should go all the way into high school. But being in Florida, and what is Florida known for, but Disney, and Disney CEO Bob Chebeck has openly opposed that bill. And it's not just that. Disney World and Disneyland have gone so far as to decide to ban the use of gender greetings within their parks. So the term boys and girls and ladies and gentlemen will no longer be uttered by employees on Disney grounds. On top of that, it gets worse. They've, they've renewed their commitment to promote the LGBTQ agenda through children's movies, programming, and any avenue that's open to them. And there's a lot of avenues open to them, and they're going to go through those doors. The sad thing is, the man, Walt Disney, most often cited his most important lesson is that of goodwill always triumphs over evil. But in our day and age, what do we know? We're living in a time when man calls evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5.20 tells us that. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So we as Christians need to say, this is wrong, and take a stand. Listen, consider canceling all things Disney. I'm not going to tell you how to run your I'm just going to consider, make the suggestion Get rid of Disney. I, I mean, the streaming service, the movies, maybe the old original ones that when Walt had it, you know, and they, they were good. Yeah, but, but man, the new stuff that's going out, not good. But, but know this. 
if we speak out against what the Walt Disney Company is doing presently, they're not going to applaud us. They're not even going to listen, actually. In fact, you'll be called intolerant. You'll be called racist. And your faith is going to be mocked. And I say speak out anyway. Yeah, we'll suffer not necessarily physical persecution, but definitely verbal persecution, mocking, slandering for standing up for righteousness. You know, it's been said the world does not persecute religious people, but it does persecute righteous people. See, this fiery trial Peter mentions here comes because we are being faithful to God and we're standing up for what is right. That's why the lost world wants to attack us. That's why they are against us. We represent a threat to their sinful life. I mean, if you've read the New Testament even once through or read anything about church history, it shouldn't surprise you that persecution is a part of the Christian life. Just read the book of Acts of Peter and John being scourged and placed in prison. Read of the stoning of Stephen or the execution of James. Read of all the opposition that came against the believers. From the start of the early church, all through her church history, down through the Middle Ages, to where we are at today, believers know that there are godless men who have a bitter hatred towards Christians and Christianity. Take the time to read Fox's Book of Martyrs and read for yourself thousands of people who gave their lives for Jesus Christ. Did you know that Joseph Stalin, when he gained control of the USSR in 1924 and communism began from 1945 to 1975, at the height of communism, Christians worldwide were killed at the rate of 330,000 per year. That doesn't even take into account those that were persecuted for their faith and lived. Today, places like North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, Christians are being persecuted, even put to death. And yet, you know what? God's work, work continues still. We have a brother here from our church, Pastor Wakas. He's in Pakistan right now. We have a couple sister churches there preaching the Word of God, people coming to faith over the Word of God. When he gets back, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Because that tells me people, despite the persecution, people are still coming to faith in Christ. And though the wicked have mercilessly tortured followers of Jesus Christ, Cruelly taken the lives of many, they have been unable to put an end to the witness of the gospel. Even in our own country, as the United States increasingly rejects God, we try to hold on to the traditional Christian values because they're under attack like never before. You know, Christianity has been attacked and marginalized as anti-Christ, left-wing media who would like nothing more than to stamp out anything to do with Jesus Christ. We're seeing this more and more and more in the days in which we live. But Jesus said it would be that way. He said in the last days, sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. So Peter says, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised by it. Expect trials to come. Realize they will come. This brings us to our second point. Number one, realize it. Number two, rejoice in it. Look at verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So after he's telling us not to be surprised by suffering, not, you know, don't think it's strange when we go through suffering, Peter makes this startling statement. He says, when you go through suffering, rejoice. Be glad with exceeding joy. What? Are you crazy? Are you nuts, Peter? I'm to rejoice because I'm suffering miserably? You know, my first reaction when I suffer, I don't know about you, it's, it's not really rejoicing. <laughs> oh, I'm really glad I'm, I'm just going through this. Yet Peter here isn't telling us to rejoice because we're suffering. Rather, he's telling us to rejoice because of what suffering for Christ brings to the life of the believer. 
Three things if you're taking notes. First, suffering, bring, suffering brings results. Jesus said in Matthew 5:12, When you suffer for the name of Christ, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven when you suffer for Christ. In other words, Jesus takes note every time we suffer for Christ. He chalks it up towards the reward that he's going to be giving to us when we stand before him. Secondly, we can rejoice when we go through times of suffering because suffering deepens our fellowship with Jesus. Whenever we suffer on behalf of the gospel, the Lord comes to us in a special way and affirms that he suffers with us. Think about this. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, didn't I throw three guys in that furnace? There's four guys in there. And the fourth guy, he's real shiny. You know, if you've ever seen VeggieTales, really shiny. Listen, why did that happen? Because the Lord Jesus came and stood with them in the midst of the flames. When Stephen was stoned for his witness to the Sanhedrin, he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's why Peter says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. Do you know what that word partake means here? It's a Greek word koinonia that means fellowship. You know, we, we say, well, hang out after church. We're going to have an agape feast, a potluck, a time of fellowship together. It's going to be great. Well, Peter uses it in the context of experiencing what Christ experienced. Think about that. What if we had a fellowship night like that? Hey, come on out and, and, and join in some fellowship with Christ as we invite those who hate Christ to come in and persecute us. That's fellowship. What do you say? I don't think we'd have much of a crowd. I'm a little busy that night. But here's my point. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, it brings us closer to the Lord and more opportunities to identify with his sufferings, to experience what he experienced. Paul said in Ephesians, or rather Philippians 3.10, that his goal in life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, the koinonia of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Because every time a believer encounters any form of persecution or goes through any various times of suffering, it becomes an opportunity for that person's relationship with Christ to be deepened as they experience a part of his pain, albeit a small part, but still a part. It gives us some idea what Christ went through for us, what it must have been like for him to be persecuted by the very people he came to save. So if you've ever suffered unjustly or been ridiculed or mocked or defamed or falsely accused, Everything that ends you in you that wants to scream, that's not right, it's not fair, it's not true. But then we look to Jesus and, 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 and what he went through for us. And you see that he just stood there and he just took it all. He was silent when they were falsely accusing him. He had done no wrong. He knew he had done no wrong. He knew they had no real accusation to bring against him. Now listen, maybe in your case, maybe in my case, though the accusations are false, if we look hard enough and we look close enough, we would find some accusation that would stick because we've all sinned. Yet Jesus, he wasn't as perfect, absolutely perfect. And, 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 and yet he suffered unjustly for us. And so because God allows us to suffer times with Christ's namesake, it gives us that small taste of what Jesus went through. See, the, the situation you're going through draws you closer and deeper into more intimate knowledge of the Lord. You get a little bit better picture of what he went through for us. Then you realize that he totally understands what you're going through. Why? Because he's been there. 
He knows what it's like to be betrayed by the ones he loves. He knows what it's like to, to have those who gave himself to deny him and take advantage of him and abandon him and forsake him. That's why the writer of Hebrews could write in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but with an all points tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, time and time again, the Lord can say to you and to I, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the problem, I know how you feel. That alone deepens our relationship with Jesus. So that when we go through times of difficulties and suffering, we can rejoice because suffering brings results. Suffering deepens our fellowship with Jesus. And the third thing, suffering gives us an opportunity for God to be glorified in our lives. Look at verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That word reproach there means to be reviled. means to be insulted. And sometimes we are insulted because we take a stand for Christ. Peter says, if that happens, you're blessed. You can rejoice. Now, I don't know of anyone that likes to be insulted. You know, I think of the movie Princess Bride. If you've seen that, Prince Humperdinck, he faces Wesley, you know, and he said to him, he's going to fight him to the death. And Wesley says, no, to the pain. And Humperdinck says, well, I, don't, I don't think I'm quite familiar with that phrase. And Wesley says, I'll explain it. And I'll use small words that you will be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. A little bit of an insult. <laughs> Humperdinck lost the battle of insults. No one likes to be insulted. But when it comes to the Christian and being uh, insulted for the sake of Christ, Peter says, be blessed. Why? Because we need to understand Christ is an insult to our human nature. Christ is an insult to our, our pride, human pride. Let me explain. Mankind, the human nature, or fallen nature, thinks, I'm okay. I'm pretty good. Or at the very least, we think we're not that bad. We know we aren't perfect, but we think we're, we're pretty close. Now, because Jesus was and is the only one that is truly perfect, and He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to the average non-believer, they have a problem with that. To the person that thinks he or she has it all together, that's a problem. Saying that Jesus is the only one who has it all together, that's an insult to their pride. It's a blow to their self-esteem and their self-sufficiency. And they'll respond to it often in forms of insults to you or mockery of God. To tell them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by Him. To tell them that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's offensive to them, offensive to the world. That's why there's so many religions out there in the world that, are, that rely on good works for salvation. Because they think in their pride, something they can do to work their way to God. So people will find it insulting and will want to lash at you when you tell them there's no amount of good things you can do to make yourself right with God. You can't get into heaven by any good thing you do. Only perfection can, can, and we are not perfect. That's why Jesus came into the world to take our place upon that cross. For He made Him who knew no sin to be us, sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But understand, when we are insulted for the name of Christ, it's because that person has made themselves equal to God. They made a God in their own liking, and they certainly don't like hearing that they are someone who is inferior, and so they're going to backlash at you and me. But again, Jesus said all these things they will do for my namesake because they don't know Him who sent me. But if the Lord allows you 
<laughs> blesses you with, with going through ridicule and insults for his name's sake. He's given you the opportunity to shine brightly and for God to be glorified in your life. Again, verse 14, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think of Stephen there in Acts chapter 6, verse 15. You know, at his trial and at his stoning, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Stephen knew that his death was imminent. Yet because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he had brightness, a calmness, and a confidence. And there's been many martyrs for the faith that have had opportunities for the Spirit of God and God to rest upon them, as Peter says. Pastor, uh, the late pastor and author Richard DeHaan, who served the Lord in the early 1900s, penned for us how he imagined what it would have been like for the early Christians who were being martyred for their faith. And he says this, and I quote, In my mind's eye, I can see thousands of people gathered in a large arena, uh, seated on stone tiers. They have come to watch athletes demonstrate their skills, but that is not the main attraction. The great cry goes up. The Christians to the lions. The door opens and a small band of men, women, and children walk slowly to the center of the stadium. Calmly and without a trace of hatred or fear on their faces, they kneel together on the ground. They pray and then rise from their knees to sing the hymn found in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Before the song is ended, the hungry lions, which have been starved for a week, are released from their cages, and in a few moments, it is all over on earth for the Christians. I say to myself, why did they die that way? Just a few grains of incense on a pagan altar, just a word of veneration for the image of the emperor, and they could have walked under the light of the sun to embrace a friend, to the embrace of friends and relatives. But to take that way of escape from violent death was abhorrent to them, for they had experienced the reality of Jesus Christ and his salvation. They knew that their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in their dying they manifest his presence and the glow of faith that could be seen upon their faces. End quote. See, Peter his conviction is that something of that glow of glory rests upon a man or a woman who suffers for the name of Christ. Even in death, God will give you the strength to stand for Him. But people on the outside, they don't get it. They don't understand where the strength comes from. It's from the Lord. And Peter's saying the power of God is going to be displayed in your life through suffering. A.W. Tozer said, Seldom does God use a person greatly who's not been hurt deeply. Again, Richard DeHaan said, to come to Christ costs you nothing. To follow Christ costs you something. To serve Christ will cost you everything. Now, Peter does give a warning here about suffering. He says, make sure if you're suffering, you're suffering for the right reasons. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Now, remember, Peter gave a similar warning back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he said, what credit is you when you get beat for doing wrong, when you've done wrong? But here he takes a step further, and he gets specific. And I want you to notice this list here that Peter gives us. He says, you know, if you're going to suffer, you know, none of you suffer as a murderer. That's bad. A thief, an evildoer, horrible, terrible, bad things. But notice what he also adds on that list. A busybody. Busy bodying in other people's matters. Why does he say that? Well, because that can be just as damaging. That's why. I think we all know busybodies, don't we? Those who love to stick their noses in other people's business. 
It's been said their only form of exercise is running down others and jumping to conclusions. It always seemed to amaze me how people can get so wrapped up in other people's lives that they want to tell you about it. That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, don't you have enough of your own problems to always be thinking about this person or that person? But for some people, that's just their life. And their thoughts revolve about what that person is doing, or what that person did, or what that person is wearing or not wearing. And, well, what if they do this? And what if they said, did you see what they did? I can't believe they did that. Look, what I don't care. Talk to God about them. Don't talk to me. I like the old children's song about being redeemed. One chorus goes, you can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you when I'm on my knees. All my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. I mean, he adds, with murderers and evildoers and thefts, busy bodies and other people's matters. Don't get involved in them. Yet, Peter says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you're suffering for a reason, not brought on by yourself, don't be ashamed. Don't think you're less of a Christian. Don't buy the lies that are thrown at you. Rather, look for the opportunity to bring God glory. Say, so, yeah, this is tough, but you know what? God's been faithful in my life. And I just want to tell you what God has done in my life. And seek ways to bring God glory, and, and God will see you through. Now, I want to point out something here that's interesting. When Peter uses the word Christian in verse 16, it meant so much more back then than it does today. Today, if you call yourself a Christian, you might as well say, oh, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. Are you religious? You know, as they think, or you know, even Mormons call themselves Christians. Then you have the Christian Science Church, which is neither Christian nor science. But but the Peter day, the word Christian actually stood for something. Wasn't as common as it is today, and the meaning was never misunderstood. You know, this is one of three places that that term is used in the New Testament. The term Christian actually originated by those who hated the believers. Shows up first in Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-six. They're in Antioch. The believers were first called Christians. wasn't a compliment. It was used as a derogatory term. Acts 26, 28, Agrippa said to the Apostle Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You see, if you were called a Christian, it was because you reminded them of Jesus. And we know of people who remind us of Jesus. You go, man, they're just like Jesus. Man, they're so kind. Man, they're so gracious. Man, their attitude. Just, I love hanging around this person because it, it, it just, I love it. Now, on a side note, the early church, because of persecution, they just didn't walk up to somebody and say, hey, are you Christian? I'm a Christian. Are you Christian? They didn't do that because there is that, was that fear of persecution. Instead, they had like secret passwords by means of which they would recognize one another if they met for the first time. One of the common passwords was the, the word fish. In the Greek, the word is ictus, and it was an acrostic well known to Christians. We've seen this before. In English letters, I stand for Jesus, C stood for Christ, T stands for of God, U stands for Son, and S stands for Savior. Jesus Christ of God, Son, Savior. So if a stranger introduced the word ictus into his conversation to avoid persecution, he was really trying to find out how you would respond, whether you were a fellow believer or not. It's also been said, and I don't know if they can actually figure out, but they would say, and walking along, you'd be talking to someone, and they might draw just half of that fish on the ground with their foot. And if you were a Christian, you wanted to know that, that you know, that they were Christian, then they would draw the other half. And you go, oh, brother, how are you? Great, how are you? You know, If not, you'd be going, okay, i got to go. See you later. But here's the, here's the deal. My point is, the word Christian meant something back then. 
So here Peter's saying, if you're suffering because you're so much like Christ, that is bugging people, don't be ashamed of that because the reality of it is God is going to be glorified in your life. But note, Peter says something interesting in verse 17 that has caused some confusion over the years. Verse 17, he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, in the history of the church, this verse has been used to beat the sheep, so to speak. Listen, church, you better get your rack together because judgment is coming. It begins with you first. God has taken names and he's starting with the church first. Watch out. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I firmly believe that the church as a whole does need to get its act together. But I don't believe this is the warning that Peter is giving to the church here to get ready or not because you're going to be judged. Understand that Peter is writing to this from Rome. The Holy Spirit is revealing to him the situation. Peter sees what's happening in the world around him. He sees Ciro, uh, Caesar Nero, rather, uh, putting Caesar and Nero together, Ciro. Uh, he, he's seeing uh, what he's doing. I, I mean, he knows that under Nero's leadership, more judgment is coming. But the judgment that, that Peter is speaking of is not from God. That judgment was poured out, uh, that we deserve was poured out in Christ. No, this judgment that begins at the house of God is from Satan. Satan wasn't as behind all of the persecution of the church. Started back in the early church, continues to this day. So Peter's warning the believers, hang in there. Yeah, it's going to get worse in the house of God among Christians. It's going to get a lot worse. And it did. Nero launched the first of ten persecutions that continued over the next 250 years where over six million Christians were put to death. But then Peter makes a contrast between those that are suffering presently because of persecution and those that will suffer eternally because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 17, time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, Peter says, look, the judgment that you're, you are going through to the hand of the enemy is nothing compared to what the people who don't know Christ are going to face at the hand of God. To put it another way, your life on earth is the closest to hell as you'll ever get, but to the non-believer, this is the closest to heaven that they'll ever see. And then Peter says in verse 18, another misunderstood verse, he says, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So what does he mean when he says the righteous one scarcely saved? Well, the word scarcely means it's difficult. It's a hard thing. Not hard in the sense that you have to work for it. We've talked about that. Our salvation is a gift unearned, unmerited, but hard in the sense of what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So Peter's saying, when you consider all that God has done for you through Jesus Christ, how He saved you through faith in Christ alone, how He saved you through His grace by pouring out His wrath and His judgment that you deserved onto His only Son, seeing His Son beaten beyond recognition, taking what we deserved, all that so we can have eternal life and have our sin forgiven, what do you think it's going to be like for those that reject that gift, reject what Jesus did for them? I tell you this, it's not something I would want anybody that I know and love to ever have to face. In other words, if you think times are tough now, wait until God moves upon a Christ-rejecting world during the Great Tribulation period as described in Revelation 6 and 19. 
Yeah, it may be hard for us as a Christian, but it's going to be a whole lot harder if you reject Christ. Because if you're still here when the tribulation starts and you're still rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you will go through unbelievable pain and suffering only to end up in hell. But you don't have to. If you just give your life to Christ today, ask Him to forgive you of your sin and commit your life to following Him. Listen, the fact of the matter is life is hard. That's just the way it is. It's hard for everyone. It's life. But even though it's hard and even though we have problems, we have access to the problem solver, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our final point. When it comes to suffering and trials, Peter says, number one, realize that trials are going to happen. Number two, rejoice in it to bring God glory. And finally, number three, respond to it. How do we respond to it? Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Let's take a, the first part of this verse first. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Maybe you've been told suffering is never in the will of God. God wants all His children to be healthy and wealthy and smiling, always go through life, we having a blast. Happy and healthy and, and prosperous and not suffering. Suffering is never God's will. Well, you better rip this page out, out or <laughs> better, you better change your way of thinking. Because God says here, let those who suffer according to the will of God, God's will, what should they do? He said they should commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. So when trouble comes, and it will come to all of us sooner or later, we generally can't do much about our circumstances. Can't wave our hands and make the sick well, or put money in the bank or cause angry people to like us. But there's one thing we can do. In the midst of our troubles, we can commit ourselves to a faithful God, our faithful Creator. The word commit means to make a deposit for protection. It's like putting something in a safe deposit box. If you've ever put something in a safe deposit box, you don't usually lose sleep over whether it's safe or not. It's in a safety deposit box. In the same way, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, you can go to sleep without worries. God is taking care of you. He's our faithful creator, and he will only do what's ultimately best for you and for me. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Have you committed your life to him today? Is that a step that you need to take right now? I imagine when the people Peter was writing to read these words, it was at a time in a place of enormous difficulty. Perhaps they couldn't even see a way forward. Listen, when life begins to tumble around you, nothing is more important than committing yourself to God as your faithful creator who loves you, promises to take care of you. Instead of trying to figure it out to solve your own problems, you need to say, Lord, I can't do it. I admit I can't do it. I'm lost without you. I can't change anything, Lord. Let your will be done in my life. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, hold nothing back. You begin to pray like that and God will hear from heaven and whether or not our circumstances change, He will change us on the inside. One more point as I think about this passage before we close and we enter into time of communion. I believe that we can never really believe that God can take care of whatever circumstance in our lives are unless we also believe in the sovereignty of God over every detail of our lives. See, Peter is teaching us that in every trial that comes our way, God is in control. Nothing can, can touch us that doesn't first pass through the Father's loving hands. 
and we will never believe in the sovereignty of God in our trials unless we also believe that God loves us with an everlasting love. And we will never be convinced of God's love unless we fix our eyes and hearts upon the cross of Christ. There we see how the evil purposes of man serve the eternal purposes of Almighty God. There we see how human sufferings accomplish our eternal salvation. Fix your eyes upon the cross, upon the cross of Christ. If you don't, it makes no sense to rejoice in our suffering. Start there and your own troubles will come into proper focus. What Jesus did for you, what Jesus did for me. So that even when the dark days come, even when you're called to go down through that valley, you can do it knowing that He'll take care of you. Maybe you're suffering today. Maybe you've got some family problems going on. Maybe there's some marital problems in your life, some children problems, some, some physical problems, a disability. Bad news from a doctor. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Whatever way you are suffering, it's hard. It doesn't, maybe it doesn't seem fair to you. And maybe you say, Lord, uh, you know, this is not right. I don't, I don't agree with this. They're not suffering. How come the guy over there isn't suffering? How come it's always me? And, and you know, go through this whole pity party. Listen, don't worry about them. You just be faithful to the Lord. Commit yourself to Him and there's a reward promised to you when you're faithful. Consider what Paul said in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We're going to close here. Let me have the worship team come up and we're going to have a uh, worship together. We're going to enter into communion. And I, we're going to do something different this morning. Uh, I, I don't think I mentioned it yet. We've put the, the bread and the juice in the one cup together. So the, the bread's on the bottom, the juice is on top. So we're just going to pass it around one, one time. It's going to... Um, uh, you know, it's going to save us some time. And so, you know, when you get it, just if it's stuck, just kind of twist it a little bit, but we're going to do so. So just a little, uh, you know, direction before we get into it. But think about this. When Jesus was on his way to the cross, he gathered his disciples together in what is called the upper room. This was for the Passover feast. They looked forward to the Passover. It was a big deal for the Jews to celebrate the Passover. But this was to be the final Passover that Christ would have with his guys. They could see as they're sitting around the table that it wasn't quite himself. They could see that something was troubling him. He probably wasn't engaging with them as he normally would have. Then he broke the news to them that he was going to be put to death. Even worse, that one of their own was going to actually betray him. And he identified the betrayer. Then he says even one of them is going to deny him. That was Simon Peter. It was devastating, earth-shaking news. Their hearts were suffering. Then, at that point, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and said, drink of this and do this in remembrance of me. And he told them that the bread would be a symbol of his broken body and that cup would be a symbol of his blood that would be shed for us. That's why we call communion the Lord's Supper. We are told in Scripture to do this in remembrance of Him until He comes again. You know, there are things that we have in life to, to jog our memory. You, know, you can set your alarm on, on your phone. You know, I have an appointment on this day. Remind me in an hour. Also, second alert, remind me in two hours. Remind me the day before, the day after. You know, because you, you want to be remembered. You, know, you want that alarm to go so you know it jogs your memory. Why do we have communion? To jog our memory. To help us refocus to say it's all about Jesus. It brings us back to Calvary, back to the cross, to remember His death, to remember His suffering, to remember His sacrifice. He told us, do this in remembrance of Me. Here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that Jesus had 
the Last Supper with only his disciples. That's because it wasn't for the general public uh, at the time. Communion is for believers only. It is for Christians. That's why the Bible says in the book of Corinthians that you're not to receive these elements in an unworthy manner. The worst thing you can do is to receive these elements and not be a Christian. Uh, it would be better, you know, if you let the elements as they're passed, I just let it go by you, you know, effectively saying, I'm not a Christian yet and this is not for me. Because if you receive them and you don't know God, you're really mocking God. Better yet, after looking at all what Jesus Christ has done for you, why don't you make that commitment to follow Christ this morning? Can come to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. But you are. You went to the cross and you died for my sins and you rose again from the grave. And your word tells me if I put my faith and trust in you, I can be born again. I can have my sin forgiven. If you've not done that, I encourage you, do that this morning. Participate in communion with us. I know you'll be blessed. Now the Bible also says when we share in communion, the Lord's Supper, we are to examine ourselves. And ask ourselves, how am I doing spiritually? Am I where I ought to be in my walk with the Lord? Maybe after talking you know, about suffering and persecution for the Lord, you really haven't had any of that because you really haven't never taken a stand on anything. You know, something happened, you kind of keep silent and, and uh, haven't really been living for the Lord. Listen, it's time to examine ourselves and say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Then asking for a fresh filling of His Holy Spirit to come upon you to live for Him in these days in which we're living. And one final thing, as we look to the Lord, if there's any sin in your life, just ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to cleanse it. The Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we can spend this morning remembering the cross, what You did for us upon that cross. And Father, I pray right now if there's anyone here that has not surrendered their heart and life to You this morning, they're not born again, Lord, that You would speak to their heart now and they would cry out to You. They would call out to You to find that forgiveness of their sin, to be born again today. To know that if they were to die today, they would go to heaven into Your presence. Lord, I pray that they would make that commitment this morning. Lord, I had to bow and our eyes are closed. Is there anyone here you want to make that commitment to Christ right now? You want to give your life to Jesus Christ? Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? I want to give you that opportunity before we pass out the elements. Father, again, thank you. Help us now to examine our lives, our hearts. Make sure we're right with you, Lord. Confess any sin that needs to be confessed. And then just rejoice in the work that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.